0: You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview podcast.
1: On Worldview this week, the focus of last week's European Council was almost entirely on the Brexit crisis, with the refugee migrant issue firmly pushed into second place. Today we read of new pressures on the Macedonian border. With the Brexit deal signed and sealed in Brussels, attention now turns to Britain and to the run-up to the June 23rd referendum. We look at how the issue is playing, particularly in the North. And in the US, a major court action is underway as the giant Apple Corporation tries to fight back against demands from the authorities that it should help them hack into the invulnerable defences of the company's iPhones. Tim Cook, the Apple CEO, has become a champion of internet privacy. I'll be discussing the migrant crisis with our Central European correspondent, Dan McLaughlin, the northern implications of Brexit with Gerry Moriarty, our northern editor, and Apple with Davin I'm Patrick Smith. Worldview is an Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our global network of correspondents. First to Dan McLaughlin. Dan, could you describe the situation on the border in Macedonia and um, Slovenia and Croatia as well? I understand that there are train transports through uh, Macedonia, but only for Syrians.
2: Uh, That's right. Well, at the moment, Syrians and Iraqis can take a train service that is now... Um, taking them all the way from uh, southern Macedonia, from the border with Greece, there, all the way through um, all the way through Macedonia, through Serbia, through Croatia, Slovenia, right to the uh, Slovenian border with Austria. Before, um, it was a much more haphazard process by which they would travel through one country, then they'd have to get off at the border, cross the border by foot, get on another train, and continue that process all the way through the Balkans. So. What Balkan states are, are trying to do, what they've been seeking to do over the last couple of weeks especially, is coordinate everything run as smoothly as possible and to try and keep as many as, as many people as possible in this sort of official channel, which now takes them by train, as you said, all the way from, from uh, southern Macedonia all the way to the Austrian border.
1: And what happens, but what they've the, been doing what happens at the same, at the same the
2: Aust- time as well? Wh- what they've been doing at the same time, these Balkan states, is trying... To reduce the overall numbers of people passing through. So since Sunday, we've seen um, uh, even tighter restrictions than before. So if before uh, Afghan uh, asylum seekers were also able to travel on this route, now that route is closed to Afghans, um, as well as lots of people from North Africa, as well as people from places like Pakistan and Bangladesh, uh, who aren't considered to have a very strong refugee claim. So I mean, in recent weeks, talking to aid groups, they say that uh, people from Afghanistan have made up something like a third of people arriving on the Greek islands. So now, Afghans are no longer uh, allowed to cross through from Greece into Macedonia. That's only exacerbating what we're seeing on, uh, in northern Greece now, which is a, a big build-up of numbers on the border and increasing pressure on, on a Greek system, which really isn't able to cope at the moment.
1: And what is the situation on that border? Is, is it now turning into a big refugee camp?
2: Well, since last summer, um, the big aid agencies have been operating around this village called Idomeni, which is uh, the village on, on the Greek side of the Greek-Macedonia border, which has been a major trans, transit point really for the last, well, the last year, really, as this crisis has built up. Um, the aid groups last summer, they, they set up a big complex of tents there, which for a number of months in, in autumn and winter, the Greek authorities didn't allow them to use because they didn't want large numbers of, of uh, refugees and asylum seekers building up on that border and effectively creating not only a sort of refugee camp there, but also blocking a major rail line um, through the Balkans, which runs through Idomeni. Um, but what they're doing now, basically, because the numbers have grown so large, I mean, aid agencies say now that over the last couple of days somewhere around 4,000 or five 5,000 people have been stuck at that point, have been able to use this 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 big complex of tents that the aid groups have there. Um, but this morning we've seen Greek police from, from the early hours trying to get as many people as they can back onto buses uh, to take them back to Athens to, to relieve the pressure at that border point. Um, but the pressure is considerable because um, as well as the Afghans who have been basically camping out there and, and, and trying to avoid being put back on buses to go back to Athens. We've also seen a, a sharp reduction in the numbers of Syrians and Iraqis who were allowed through. So it's a, a particularly um, tense situation that's been building up over the last couple of days. Um, it's clear from, from, from hearing from from Greek officials and from hearing from aid agencies that Um, Even if these people are taken back, if if several thousand people are taken back to Athens, um, the Greek facilities are going to struggle because um, Athens will now become a build-up point and Piraeus will become a build-up point because thousands of people each day are also arriving from the Greek islands on the mainland. So it's an extremely difficult situation, not just at the... uh, at the border between Greece and Macedonia, but but elsewhere in Greece as well, just now.
1: And on the border, for the lucky ones who get onto the trains uh, and and go to the Slovenian Austrian border, what happens to them there?
2: Well, it's only been operating for a few days, but it seems that uh, along the along this route, basically the the train goes all the way through those several countries that we mentioned. The people on board can only get off if they have any medical problems or if they specifically request that they want to claim asylum in one of those countries, Macedonia, Serbia, Croatia, or Slovenia. When the train reaches the uh, Slovenia-Austrian border, they disembark, and they go through another registration process. So um, they give fingerprints, they give their family details, they uh, they show personal identification documents. That's another aspect that is also being tightened up down on the Macedonia-Greece border. Um, until the last few days, uh, travel documents that were being issued on the Greek islands were being accepted as, uh, as proof of identity and proof that someone was Syrian or Iraqi. Now we're hearing that on that Greece-Macedonia border, Macedonia is only allowing people in who can show an original, authentic um, Syrian or Iraqi passport. So They go through, they take the train journey, they register again on the Austrian border with Slovenia, and then Austria decides uh, whether to allow them in or not. We've seen cases of people being pushed back. If um, the people who are asking the questions there, they have Arabic speakers obviously there on the border, and they're asking people questions about where they're from, um, details about the cities that they claim to come from. They're obviously checking people's accents as well. So there have been several cases, certainly in recent weeks. Uh, hundreds of cases even of people claiming to be from Syria or Iraq, but actually um, the Arabic speakers there on the on the Slovenia-Austria border believe that they're actually speaking with um, an Algerian accent or a Moroccan accent. So those people are being pushed back. Um, so that is the situation at the moment. But when we talk about the, the additional measures that Balkan states are now taking to reduce numbers of people traveling through their region, the real trigger for this was uh, an announcement by Austria last week that it would limit um, asylum requests every day to a maximum of 80 people, and it would, uh, it would limit people uh, entering Austrian territory to 3,200 people per day. So this triggered a certain amount of alarm in Balkan states because, uh, above all, they don't want to become a kind of collection point for people who can't move on further into Western Europe, can't push them back further south through the Balkans. So they're trying to restrict numbers in reaction to what they see as Austrian measures uh, and what they fear may in the future be German measures to also uh, restrict the inflow of people.
1: And and indeed, Denmark and Sweden uh, also recently announced uh, new measures to to limit numbers. And is that that visible back down the line in terms of the flow at, at the Austrian-Slovenian border.
2: Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, this is this is re- this has really been the key for the Balkan states all the way along. Um, they are desperate to not end up as a as a collection point. Um, so they want to be ahead of events. So if Austria does um, start limiting en- uh, entries further, then um, they want to be able to react very quickly and make sure that at no point along the Balkan route do uh, the people get trapped effectively. Um, what is upsetting Greece particularly is this sort of coordination between Balkan states and Austria, increasingly, to the exclusion of Greece. Um, we've seen an announcement in the last couple of hours today that tomorrow, that tomorrow, that's Wednesday, uh, Austria will host a meeting of interior ministers and foreign ministers from Balkan states, but excluding Greece. Uh, Greece has already reacted angrily to this. The uh, Austrian ambassador to Athens has been summoned to the foreign ministry for consultations on this. Um, And if we we look at what Balkan states are doing now, it also chimes with calls that we've heard from central European states, uh, Hungary, Slovakia, Czech Republic, Poland in the last few weeks, to make sure that if Greece can't effectively uh, uh, and drastically reduce the numbers entering its territory from Turkey, then another line somewhere has to be created. I mean, this is what um, Viktor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister, called a a European defensive line. He said, and um, his colleagues in in Central Europe agreed with him, that the best place for this would be Greece's northern border. So that is being seen now as a place where um, European countries that are very much concerned by this this influx of numbers and, and, and an, an ever greater influx of numbers. Um, this is where it should be stopped. So, so that northern border, uh, Greece's northern border with Macedonia, and its northern border with Bulgaria, is a particular focal point now. Um, fences are being reinforced there, and police officers from. Um, from states all over Central Europe are helping their Macedonian colleagues in particular to guard that border and make sure that um, that there is a sharp reduction of numbers of, of people coming through there right
1: now. And at EU level, we're not seeing any kind of uh, agreement coming on, on quotas for, for the other the European countries, are we?
2: No, and this is particularly alarming. I mean, we've heard in the last few days from the major organizations like the, the UNHCR, the UN uh, Refugee Agency, uh, the International Organization for Migration, Amnesty International, um, Médecins Sans Frontières. They're all extremely worried not only by the, um, the deteriorating humanitarian situation in Greece and in the Balkans in general, but this lack of a coordinated response. Um, If we look at some of the key things the European Union has tried to get done over the last few months, for example, creating these registration hotspots, as they're called on Greek islands, I mean, they've been delayed for months and months. These are places where um, uh, refugees and asylum seekers and migrants were supposed to be gathered, registered, and those with uh, a strong case for becoming refugees and and being granted asylum status would, would be allowed to move on and others would be kept back and then returned to their home countries. Um, Greece is only just now really getting to grips with complete hotspot centers. Um, And in terms of a a workable system of returning people to their home countries, there is absolutely no sign of that being put into effect. If we look at the results of the summit last year, which called for 160,000 refugees to be distributed around Europe, on a sort of quota basis, Um, only about 500 people have been redistributed under that scheme so far. And that's basically failed. I mean, lots of countries, particularly in Central Europe, have said they will not accept any kind of quota scheme that Germany has been pushing for the last few months. If we look at coordination with Turkey, late last year the European Union um, offered Turkey 3 billion euros in return for lots of measures to to both make life better for refugees living in Turkey, and also to, to stop people moving on to Greece. Um, from what we can see, none of those measures are having are, are, are in effect at the moment. If they have, been, um, uh, if any uh, measures are being taken by Turkey, they're not having any dramatic effect on numbers crossing to Europe. We saw from the International Organisation for Migration today figures that um, so far this year. More than 110,000 people have already crossed from Turkey into um, from Turkey to Greece and from North Africa to Italy. Now, if we compare that to last year, it wasn't until the end of June that we uh, that, that more than 100,000 people reached Europe. So we're already we've already had more people arrive in January and February than arrived um, in the first six months of last year. So the numbers are. Uh, overwhelming at the moment, and there is no sign of a coordinated response from the EU uh, or anything in, corporate, in cooperation with Turkey, which you know Balkan states and Central European states say is forcing them to take these kind of unilateral actions and also group actions to um, to protect their own borders and stop themselves being and stop those countries being um, uh, being forced to cope with with huge numbers of refugees and asylum seekers potentially being stuck on their territory at some point in the, in the coming weeks and months.
1: Thank you very much, Dan. In Northern Ireland, the announcement of the Brexit referendum date in June has quickly seen the division of the political parties along predictable uh, lines for and against EU membership. For many, the prospect of new border controls and trade restrictions seemed to suggest a turning back of north-south relations by decades. Jeremy Moriarty, that prospect does not seem to alarm the unionists. Are they just seeing it all as scaremongering?
3: Well, certainly from the Democratic Unionist Party side, uh, they are avowedly Eurosceptic, and Arlene Foster has nailed her colours to the mast, and she says uh, they're going to vote no, uh, while also saying that she understands there will be people within the DUP who you know, will have a, will, will have a different view, but the, the, the dominant line from the DUP is get out, Uh, The other main unionist party, the Ulster Unionist Party, hasn't decided their uh, ruling executive is to meet next week. Uh, Mike Nesbitt hasn't given a flavour of what he will do, apart from saying that, you know, the Secretary of State, Theresa Winters, must maintain a Chinese wall between her job as representing the British government and also her view on uh, Brexit She, she wants to get out uh, so we, we don't know what they will do but they perhaps might leave it individually to to the to the members to decide as they so, as they so choose. Uh, and the other main unionist party, the traditional unionist voice party um, Jim Allister, yeah, definitely get out. He said unions have nothing to lose but their chains.
1: Right. And what is your sense generally of the, of the state of public opinion as the campaign starts? It's sort starts? of hard
3: to tell that, I mean there's a half suspicion that when the vote comes, that probably a majority in Northern Ireland would vote to stay. Uh, now that's that's not based because there hasn't been any sort of polling or anything like that yet. But just looking, say, you know, the, the business reaction, the Chamber of Commerce say that sort of 80, 80% of their members would prefer to remain. You know, and this is much higher than the figure in, in Britain, which is 60 to remain and 30 to get out. Um, the farmers, you know, you have. Sort of the unionist farmers, they, there will be concerns about e, EU subsidies and supports. Uh, the contrary argument people will, be, will deal with: well, Britain will, ha- will have so much free money. There's talk of you know being worth 12 billion pound net. That some of that money will come back uh, to Northern Ireland, and that therefore the the farmers won't suffer. But look at the, at the demographics: you have the SDLP and Sinn Fein firmly for. You have alliance which you know. Cr- uh, Centrist cross party there, therefore, as well, and that you are taken the business people, you've taken some of the farmers, so probably the odds are in favour of of staying, you know, by a majority. But it could be a slim enough majority if if unionists push this hard.
1: Uh, although it's possible to see within the unionist community strands of of, of support for of staying in. Uh, are there similar uh, movements in inside the nationalist population for going out?
3: Not to the same extent at all. I haven't noticed or heard any fairly you no know, prominent person or politician or business person saying you know uh, it would be good for the UK to quit Europe. Uh, I'm sure some will emerge in the coming weeks because it's you know it's not a monolithic view. Mm. But I'd say. The predominant view uh, within nationalism, certainly represented by their political parties, is to stay.
1: Yeah, and Sinn Fein's position of not only opposing Brexit but insisting that the South should stay in the EU um, if if um, Brexit happens represents a significant shift in their position on on the EU. Um, Sinn Fein down here has opposed every EU treaty uh, in in the history of such uh, referendums, and. Um, is there is, is this move by Sinn Fein to a more sympathetic, pro-European position, been uh, coming uh, down the tracks?
3: It has, yeah. I mean, it's it's like you you know the the fought the fight in the in the seventies and so on in terms of Europe, but you know from my just observations, that has changed considerably over the past decade, and so you, I mean you, you just don't hear um, Sinn Fein politicians giving an anti-Brussels line. Any, anymore and I mean McGuinness was even quite even stronger than the SDLP, who you know with John Hume has always been the very pro European party you know um, Martin McGuinness even called for of um, Villers uh, to quit because she's taking this um, exit line even though the Northern Ireland Office says his um, his call is ludicrous so uh, you, know, you know Sinn Féin has definitively changed his position alright
1: I got a note in this morning in the post from a sovereignty group down in Dublin, uh, accusing Sinn Féin of betraying republicanism by uh, its support for the EU, and and saying that this was a, a terrible betrayal of a long-standing tradition. And is there any sign of that discussion at all in the party in the north? No,
3: <laughs> It's the short answer, Paddy. I haven't. I know mean, I, I, it it may emerge, but I just, as you know yourself, they're a very democratically centralist party. Uh, when the word comes from the top, and people generally tend to follow it. I haven't heard any suggestions of, you know, councillors or individual MLAs, you know, having a crisis of conscience over this issue. I don't think it's a big issue for them. Uh, so I, I, it's it just, you know, just times have changed in relation to Sinn Féin and the EU, as far as I can see. And I think that's reflected by the position of Martin McGuinness, who says, you know, the, the party will campaign vigorously uh, to keep Northern Ireland, to keep the Northern Ireland and, and by extension, Britain uh, in the European Union.
1: It'll be a strange canvas. One of the players in the north who will, as you said, be also uh, on the on the Brexit side is Secretary of State Theresa Villiers. And as one of the British papers observed, given her responsibilities in Northern Ireland, it's a strange position for her to be uh, taking. Will she be able to give assurances, for example, that the lost farm payments will be topped up? She uh, has she also said anything about how the border issue would be managed it would be addressed?
3: No, she hasn't. But the, the the line from the the Leave campaign so far, you know, the general line without any evidence for it is that because they will have so much money to play with, uh, farm subsidies will be will be maintained, and that nobody will lose out in Northern Ireland. And in fact, they're sort of arguing to the contrary that with that extra money, they'll be able to um, promote extra business, and they're able to you know saying things like, "Well, anyway, fishing has suffered through EU membership," and that. You know things could even improve in that way, and that it could be a windfall for Nor- financially for uh northern ireland um and that that's what and I presume she will she hasn't said too much on those issues yet, but I suppose that that's what we will hear for her and but it was, will be to, you know she has a tighter up to watch to walk uh David Cameron has defended her uh, position and you know to, uh, uh, notwithstanding that she has gone against him um but, you know, she, she has to reflect uh, British government views here while having a view that is contrary to the position of the British government. And there's another interesting point, just just worth mentioning. Um, the British and Irish governments are co-guarantors of the Belfast Agreement. Uh, that phrase, uh, you you've, I, I have never heard a trip from Theresa Vitter's lips that uh, the two governments are are our Co- co-guarantors, uh, and it's sort of interesting that she has this position on sovereignty. And I expect, you know, down the line, some nationalist politicians, perhaps even some southern politicians, will raise questions: Does her position conflict with a sovereign agreement, as reflected in the 1998 Belfast Agreement and the uh, St Andrews Agreement?
1: Now, the issue of Scotland's place in the UK is certain to come up strongly again if Scotland votes to stay, while well, the majority of the UK wants to leave. Does that issue and its implications play in the debate in Northern Ireland? And it hasn't
3: played yet, but it, 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 but it will play because I mean that's something unionists in particular will have to consider uh, in terms of the vote. That there is a big argument if if, if, England, and, you know, if England and Wales um, vote uh, vote to leave and, and, Northern, and Scotland votes votes to stay, there is a the potential that that could trigger a second referendum, and that this time you know, maybe the pro-European argument would, would carry the day for, for the Scottish uh, nationalists. And, you know, were Scotland to leave the Union, I mean, that would certainly have to cause anxiety to Unionists. So it's something they will have to consider as this um, campaign develops. It, it hasn't come to the fore yet, but, I, but, it, but it will.
1: Thank you very much, Jerry. You're listening to The Irish Times. The new champion of internet p- privacy is Tim Cook, CEO of Apple. Now, what's this case about, Davin?
0: Well, it's a very, uh, it's a, a very specific case about the the San Bernardino shooters uh, uh, shooting incident in December, uh, San Bernardino in uh, in California, uh, where a couple, say Farouk and his wife. Um, shot up uh, the civic center where Farouk worked. Uh, It was interesting at the time because it resembled so many mass shooting incidents in in America, but it subsequently became apparent that they uh, had uh, kind of vowed affiliation with uh, the Islamic State uh, in a few Facebook posts. Uh, So it went from being a rather uh, conventional uh, mass shooting by American standards to a terrorist incident, uh, completely changing the, the tenor of the investigation uh in following up and trying to ascertain what sort of links uh Faruk and his wife actually had with the islamic state uh whether they were just inspired by or whether there was they were actually coordinating with islamic state and um, they uh went uh, uh, obtained his iphone and um, and uh in attempting to uh, gain access to his iphone to see uh, uh to see what what the communications he might have had on it, uh, they came up against his passcode, which is the four or six-digit um, uh, security code to, uh, to, to 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 gain access. Um, and uh, they've uh, this uh, just last week gone to Apple uh, with a court order requiring Apple to develop uh, sp- special software, which they claim will just be used on this phone uh, to basically crack the passcode uh, using kind of a brute force method. Uh, technically, it's uh, quite complicated, um, but uh, essentially allowing them to try as many attempts as possible without erasing uh, the, all the data on the iPhone. Um, Tim Cook, Apple's chief executive, has come out uh, strongly. Uh, opposing this uh, saying that it's uh, it would be setting a very dangerous precedent um, and that uh, creating such software would be uh, far too dangerous uh, for them to contemplate uh, while ostensibly it might just be used with this specific iPhone, uh, Cook warns that inevitably would end up uh, being disseminated used again and again and also being used not just by American law enforcement agencies but also for instance uh, foreign agencies in China or uh, other countries. With uh, It's quite a different type of, of uh,
1: power that they're looking for. It, the power to hack is quite different from the usual access through court
0: orders. Indeed uh, it's, uh, uh, what's unusual about this is they're using a 200 uh, the FBI and the court order are citing a 200 year old um, uh, uh, act called the All Writs Act, um, which uh, was designed essentially to force people to comply with uh, uh, in cases that they weren't actually involved in. So the the archetypal case would be a landlord, Uh, they have a search warrant for a property, and uh, they go to the landlord saying, give us your keys and let us in here, and under the All Writs Act, the landlord is uh, compelled to uh, get his keys and open the door. uh, the, uh, the 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 parallel doesn't really translate uh, to the digital world as, as Cook pointed out. Um because uh, once this is created, uh, the precedent is set, uh, ultimately, um, the fear would be that the law enforcement agencies would compel Apple to actually just build this in so that they could uh, they could automatically gain access to uh, to, to all iPhones. Uh, what's also interesting, numerous uh, facets to this case, but uh, Farouk and his wife had their own personal cell phones. This iPhone was owned by his employer, the San Bernardino County, um, and... Uh, uh, they uh, had access to the the, um, the iCloud details. Uh, under FBI direction, they changed that password. Um, it now seems that if they hadn't changed the password, the FBI would have been able to obtain all this information otherwise. But this
1: guy is a, undoubtedly a terrorist, and uh, there was this mass shooting uh, that he was involved in. Should we really be concerned about him, and should we not be uh, applauding
0: the police for trying to get to the bottom of it? Um Absolutely. Well, of course, I mean, uh, uh, James Comey, the FBI director, said, uh, you know, they, they owe it to the, the families of the victims to do everything they can to do a thorough investigation. Uh, this widespread suspicion, um, given that this, this request is coming in the back of um, a heated debate in kind of a post-Edward Snowden environment for weakening encryption um, uh, and that pressure is going kind to... Of put on uh, not just Apple but also companies such as uh, Google, Microsoft, Facebook Microsoft are involved in a long-running case um, about uh, information stored on servers here in Ireland that they're uh, they're attempting to prevent uh, uh, access to and um, and long the NSA CIA and FBI uh, have been very vocal in their attempts to uh, to sway public opinion against uh, against encryption um, using essentially variations on the if you've nothing to hide uh, you've nothing to be afraid of uh, and just last 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 year there was an interesting uh, Robert Litt who's a basically the top top lawyer for the US intelligence uh, community as such um, he wrote an uh, email to colleagues that it could turn in the uh, that they, the legislative environment, was very hostile today uh, to attempts to uh, weaken um, uh, in- encryption and security features but he, said, he wrote it could turn in the event of a terrorist attack or criminal event where strong encryption can be shown to have hindered law enforcement and um, uh, so it's this sort of environment that is raising the suspicion of people who believe that the FBI here are looking for the interest in the evidence. And
1: indeed the, the WikiLeaks r- revelations uh, showed in, intense cooperation going on between the telecom companies and, and the American government in terms of, of accessing uh, data from from their clients. Is Apple the first really to say enough is enough?
0: Uh, well there is that Microsoft case um, uh, which was uh, in terms of data kept on, on, on servers outside the US and um, the, the subsequent kind of the, the uh, fall of the safe harbor agr- arrangement between the EU and uh, and, and the US because of the Max Schrems case, the Austrian activist who took yeah, you'd on yeah, you have uh, to take us back a little. Yeah, there. yeah. So they they uh, the the I- in in terms of answering your question, the um, uh, the larger compliance with with programs such as Prism and uh, national security agency programs that was revealed in uh, by Edward Snowden, and uh, kind of revealed a, a worrying degree of, uh, of of complicity, really. Um, the, a, lot, a lot of the technology companies took that as an opportunity to uh, uh, to um, focus on privacy as, as a kind of a, a, a selling uh, and, and, and part of their uh, marketing aspect as such. Um, the uh, case against Facebook taken by Max Schrems, who's an Austrian activist, um, uh, went ultimately uh, all, all the way to, to European Court, and uh, uh, it was decided that the or it was crazy This that is actually the, an Irish case. Uh, it is. Well, it was originally an Irish case against the Data Protection Commissioner because Facebook's headquarters are here, mm. um, and Safe Harbor, uh, slightly <laughs> misleadingly named Safe Harbor, uh, was was struck down, um, uh, and so the the the, the uh, that's all there's all really in keeping of kind of a much larger and rather kind of uh, nascent uh, discussion i think about uh the degree of privacy and security over our data that people are entitled to and um, and there are various tensions between uh, government agencies on the one side who want unfettered access to a lot of this and companies uh that uh, they're basically determined to try and keep the uh, uh Keep 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 this uh, information private as much as possible. And and for Apple, it's a branding issue
1: that they want to be able to sell their phones on the basis that these are the most secure phones in in the entire.
0: It certainly, the there is certainly uh, an element of it. I do think I'm, I'm slightly sceptical of the notion that they would choose this particular case to go on a marketing exercise, given that it did involve uh, Islamic State-affiliated people who killed 14 people, I'm sure. If they wanted to make uh, a, a branding exercise out of it, they might have chosen a slightly less uh, <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> less difficult case to do enough. so.
1: Now, over here, we, we have a, a data privacy regime which requires the... Um, telecom companies to hold on to what's called metadata mm. for a considerable period, I think it's three years, mm. uh, so that if at any point in the, that three years the police want to check up on where you've been or who you've been talking to, mm. they can require that information to be provided. Uh, that uh, metadata issue is now being challenged uh, in a judicial review arising from the, K- the, the attempt to... Um, look at journalist phones mm, uh, mm. by by uh, Gsoc um, it's it's an extension of the same argument really isn't it Bill?
0: yes i, I mean as, uh, ultimately we have uh, the the, the it's a rather modern phenomenon, which has really only kind of arisen with the, with the rise of smartphones and such. Uh, that uh, so much more data, which uh, um, uh, is is now stored on these devices, and because of uh, cloud technology, the the information is also being backed up on servers owned by companies uh, all over the world. Um, and the degree to which we have a right to. Uh, control over that information and control who accesses it uh, is, uh, is 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 a very live one, and it's at this. You know, the, the iPhone is less than ten years old, for instance. So the um, we're still at a very early stage of uh, in terms of the kind of legislative uh, environment over c- control of this. Uh, in in the um, uh, in, in the Apple case, or in the in the case of Said Farouk the uh, the uh, San Bernardino shooter and um, Apple uh, complied with, uh, or cooperated with the FBI and gave over uh, iCloud information, so information that was on the phone that had already been backed up uh, to their servers. Verizon, uh, the phone company, had handed over all that metadata um, by all accounts, from from reports, uh, none of that information suggested that uh, there were actual any uh, communications with Islamic State figures either in the U.S. or or elsewhere. Um, uh, but it's uh, the the tension between the right to privacy. I mean, it recalls uh, Benjamin Franklin's famous line about the uh, uh, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Um, but that's that. This is a discussion that. That needs to be had, and it needs to be in a very informed discussion because the, the issues are technically complex. Um, so uh, yeah, Tim. Cook's uh, suggestion that there be a kind of a commission to uh, um, to discuss uh, the, all these issues um, uh, is is uh, I think an effort in that. I think that also reflects the fact that legally, uh, Apple probably don't uh, aren't on the most uh, uh, secure ground here. I suspect there are precedents um, for using the All Writs Act to uh, to obtain uh, cooperation of companies. So uh, I suspect the attempt to uh, get uh, public. Popular, popular opinion uh, on the side of encryption and data security uh, and uh, uh, attempt to have a kind of a commission to discuss these issues and um, once for all kind of determine the, the, the limits that law enforcement agencies should have is part of a larger discussion that will inevitably be global because uh, decisions made in Silicon Valley or in Washington ine- inevitably end up having massive repercussions and uh, implications for those of us who use these devices all over the world. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks to Davin O'Dwyer, Jerry Moriarty, and Dan McLaughlin to our producer Declan Conlon and Rob O'Sullivan on sound. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week.